podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. You're listening to Uncovered with Barat Sundarason and Jared Kimber on the 99.94 Network. Unfortunately, uh, we tried as much as we could to get Barat on today, but I think he was traveling, well, he must have been traveling into Nagpur, had some SIM problems, and then he had mobile phone problems, and and then he had Wi-Fi problems. So eventually, I just pushed it back, and I'll do this one on my own. Uh, Plenty to talk about, of course, India, Australia, Women's World Cup is coming up. Uh, So we've got pieces on both of those, big videos on both of those, uh, but we'll chat about some other things, and of course, also a little bit of... Tage Nine, uh, Chandra Paul, who batted for longer than I suppose anyone would ever want to. Uh, as far as when we do these lives, I actually got a question from Gaurav, who says, I really want to watch it live and ask questions. Hopefully Sunday, Jared, you'll host it during the day um, or even in the evening, um, a court, you know, for um, Indian stand, um, time. Of course, we don't plan it around what times. <laughs> um, uh, other people are available. We can only plan it around the times that me and Bharat are available. He's in India for a while. Um, I think later on I'll be in Australia and I'll probably be on other time zones as well because I'll be covering some test matches from New Zealand and maybe some test matches from Bangladesh, uh, sorry, some limited overs potentially from Bangladesh as well. Me and Barat just have to fit it around when we're both available. And we were hoping to do this one during the day, but it's always going to be random, this podcast, because me and Barat are random. Um, so, so we do the best that we can. Uh, but thanks to anyone who uh, can join us live, obviously. But let, let's talk a little bit about India-Australia. I think it's a very fascinating series at the moment just because, as it currently stands, Australia is missing so many frontline seam bowling options. And I would have thought that their plan coming in maybe a week ago would have been, let's go in with three seamers, maybe even four seamers, um, and take Nathan Lyon. And he would bowl from one end and you would, you know, sort of rock between the Hazelwood and Cameron Green bowling with a high release and Mitchell Stark trying reverse and Pat Cummins bowling 80 mile an hour cutters uh, as he did uh, not that long ago in, um, well, I say not that long ago, six years ago now in in dismissing KL Rahul. So that's kind of where I thought this was uh, going to be going for them just because I don't think they really rely on Ashton Agar to be a frontline spinner. Perhaps with Cameron Green in the side, they could have, you know, uh, maybe Hazelwood, weirdly enough, is the bowler not to pick at that stage. Not that Hazelwood isn't a fantastic bowler, just because him and Cameron Green perhaps represent a sort of a similar um, kind of skill set. And that's all obviously all gone to hell, right? So really, really interesting. I think the from the limited amount of times I've seen him, I think Murphy is probably their second best spinner. Can't see how you can play two off spinners against India in India. It's certainly not re- worked at times before when Australia's tried things like that. Um, Swepson in some of the other Asian surfaces, I kind of like. I don't know if you'll get, uh, I don't know if he'll be quick enough through the air to really bother anyone in India. On you know, Generally, the wrist spinners there seem to be a little bit quicker. Uh, and as I said, Agar had issues, I want to say issues with Agar. It's the wrong way of putting it, but you know, it's a long career now for Ashton Agar. I think we know who he is as a bowler. Um, really interesting from that point of view that he's still good enough um, to be around, but obviously not good enough to automatically be the second spinner, which looking back at his debut when he was a handy sort of holding bowler and obviously uh, decent with the bat, 
you would have thought by this stage, at the very least, what he would have allowed for us for Australia to have automatic two spinners um, and beef up their batting a little bit. His batting is okay, but he probably can't bat seven in a test, other than, you know, one or two test matches in a pinch, certainly not over a long period of time. Uh, And his bowling, it's okay again. And that's where they sort of find themselves with Agar. And, uh, you know, I think going forward, they might have found a spinner that they would like. But at the moment, um, I don't really see. Um, yeah, I think I think going forward, they might be slightly more comfortable. But again, if Lyon plays for another three years, it's, a, it's still an off spinner that might be their second best spinner. So it's, it's a weird position to be in. But I suppose at the very least that, you know, having someone coming through. And I think they've still got decently high expectations for Swepson going through as well. So uh, from that point of view, it just kind of throws Australia and I'm only assuming here, but at the very least, I think it was going to be a pace-dominant attack that they were going to go for. You know, do they, they almost don't have any pace left. <laughs> so um, so Boland will come in. I uh, certainly don't think he's going to be a fantastic uh, bowler in India. I think, we, I think there's a lot of times you see very, very clever bowlers who aren't particularly quick. And I think Boland's maybe a touch quicker than some of the guys that I'm thinking of. But... I think quite often there's this thought that they will work it out um, in Asia. It's hard. I think it's hard if you don't have, you know, something else to rely on or you have the experience in those conditions to make the ball work the way that you want. So, and then of course, India uh, don't have Jasper Bumrah. Not as big an issue just because, you know, pace is probably not going to be their biggest strength in this series. Not to discount how well the pace, their pace balls have bowled over the last few years because India's pace bowlers have been incredible. But having one guy missing out, I mean, that's not the guy you want missing, of course, but that's a bit of an issue. I think Rishabh Pant is probably more of an issue. You know, do they go with Ishan um, or do they go with Bharat? Uh, There's ideological differences there, but you're also sort of throwing one guy in. Um, I would have thought and that there is an ability if they want to actually, especially if they, let's say they think Barrett is the better wicketkeeper, which I think most of us would. I mean, technically, it certainly looks that way. Uh, not sure I've seen any stats proving it, but, you know, look at the both of them. I think it would be hard to argue that isn't the case. Let's say they think he's better, but he obviously isn't going to be as much of a plus with the bat. If they do have Ashwin, Akshar, and Jadeja in the side, it does allow them to bat Barrett at what eight if they wanted to with a decent number nine behind him now I don't think they'll quite go to that extreme but I was talking about this when I was looking at the India's World Cup team it's you know they are just they have the ability to be so flexible with lineups in a way that most teams just do not um, have that ability uh, to do that so it's they could do that or where could they bet they could bet Ishan at six, uh, Jadeja at seven, Ashwin at eight, Akshar at nine. Again, you still got some bat- batting all the way down to number nine. You've got three world-class spinners. Uh, you've got a wicketkeeper who can whack it around and, you know, maybe not quite on the level of Rashad Pant, but certainly uh, has the ability to put pressure back on the opposition. You can also put Jadeja up to six if you wanted to in that situation and let Ishan sort of nuzzle in at number seven I'm not sure if nuzzle is the right word or maybe it is <laughs> maybe it is uh, but yeah you certainly have the uh, the ability to be able to do those sorts of things so 
it's it's really interesting from that perspective. But what it isn't is you know the two A lineups. I suppose we can't say A lineups in Australia can we, in in cricket, can we? Because we have A teams. But you know, you it, there's it's quite an interesting um, a subplot. We saw that obviously India had to go through that before, um, and so it shows a little bit more of depth and variability. It might be that Australia were planning to go in with just that one spinner in that first test. I don't think so, but it's well, I wouldn't be positive of it, but I was thinking that it was at least an option for them. And they could completely flip the script and go the other way now. Um, so in some ways it opens up the series uh, massively. Uh, the uh, uh, um, Ravi has come out and says he wants the ball to spin from day one. That's kind of like, it feels like the reaction to Ian Healy's quotes. It's really interesting to me, and I talked about this a little bit on the Edges and Sledges podcast the other day. Uh, if you don't if you don't listen to them, probably a good time to start listening to them with this major series coming um, around. Uh, Ian Healy's not really like a frontline name in Australian cricket anymore. Um, not to say he wasn't, you know, he was certainly an Australian great player. And as a wicketkeeper, he was fantastic and probably one of the better batter wicketkeepers of his era. Obviously, the game sort of changed towards the end of his career. So he's maybe not remembered as fondly as he should be. Also, he had a massive drop-off in the last year and a half uh, where I don't think he don't think he made any runs so he probably lost a few few marks off his average right towards the end as well but the, the point is that now uh, especially with the internet there's the, the India Australia series are so big in a sort of dynamic way in that it doesn't matter you know it could have been Rodney Hogg making those comments of which you know, twelve Australians might have listened to, but they could make uh, they could make news. So when Ian Healy says, you know, Australia's got a good chance of winning if the pitches aren't doctored, you know, it makes a lot of news around, and it reminds me of how mad India Australia series have become. I talked about this a little bit in the World Cup as well. Of I think it was the Virat Kohli um, incident where he went to mock throw the ball and the ball goes past and the umpire doesn't give it as, as penalty runs. And everyone's like, whoa, how could you? And it's like, well, have a look at Twitter. Like a couple of hundred people noticed that. And yet there were a couple of million people, probably millions of millions. It was India, wasn't it? There's was probably 40, 50, 80 million people around the world watching that game. Um, and a few people took to Twitter to it. And everything sort of gets blown out of proportion. And I think of, of the in, uh, the, you know, the World Cup and the IPL are two uh, events that are certainly happening with. But the third one is India-Australia. It has been for a long time, you know. Uh, I'm trying to think of how far you would be going back, but something as simple as I think probably pre-internet, Matthew Hayden making a comment about uh, India being a third-world country because their sight screens weren't moved quick enough. Um sort of does tell you, you know, and that being a huge news story for a little while, I wouldn't say that was the canary in the coal mine, but I think that's really the moment when every comment made by either side, um, you know, is scrutinised. And you look at look at um, was him Jaffa, you know, who I've worked with before, and I really I really like him. But he he, he makes a comment about Ashwin, um, them getting the Ashwin in, impersonator in, and it's like teams have been doing that for a very long time. <laughs> this is not a new thing. Um, it's not always reported on. Um, uh, it's it's something that as a as an analyst, it was something I tried to do all the time. We were going up against a team with a particularly tall bowler. I 
going around trying to find tall bowlers to come into the nets uh, to bowl against us. You know, if you've got a slinger, try and find a slinger. There was the um, English kid who had a similar action to Murley, who would quite often, you know, uh, bowl against England before they had to go to Sri Lanka. All these sorts of things is, it's not even remotely new. And no one's saying it's exactly the same thing. Sometimes you're trying to replicate where the ball comes out of the hand. Um, in this particular case, you've got someone who's, I, I think it's unfair to call him an Ashwin impersonator, right? It's probably more fair to call him a um, a bowler who has mimicked Ashwin. Um, I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to think of someone else. There's another modern bowler who's copied someone else before, hasn't there? Um, of recent times, I've completely forgotten the bowler's name. I blanked on it, but um, you know, you do see bowlers sometimes with another action that is uh, very, very straight. So, uh, very, very copied off someone else, I should say. In fact, if you go back pretty sure that Dennis Lilly's action, early action, is really, really similar to Wes Hall's, maybe slightly more compact, um, but it's been happening for a very, very long time. And the point is, you'd be silly if you're a team not to be able to do that. Uh, so, but everything is getting heightened, even in a way that the ashes don't. Um, and generally what happens now is, I think the, uh, what do they call them? They call them the netizens um, in the uh, in the aggregating cricket columns. <laughs> the netizens, uh, I, you know, in India, there's just so many eyes on everything that happens on these games that they're noticing everything and they become a bigger thing. And then usually what happens is the, the Australian media sort of bite back. Um, and, and so next thing you know, you've got this sort of circular motion and, uh, you know, you end up with uh, Virat Kohli being compared to Donald Trump and, and all the other sort of nonsense and random cutting comments. It's a really, really interesting, um, series from that perspective because it's very different to India, England and most other Indian series, uh, from, from that. Uh, but it, you know, I can't wait to see, I think, uh, who was it here? Uh, Rifat um, sent a message going, how much will you miss Punt as a spectator? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you're missing Cameron Green, who it would be really interesting to see how he would go over there, especially with the recent IPL offer. You know, Mitchell Stark is obviously a fantastic um, uh, bowler when he's on form, and I'd love to see how he goes if you can get the ball to reverse swing. Jasper Brummer. And Rishabh Pant's just on another level, right? I think almost every time he plays an attacking innings, I write an article on it. Um, he sort of sucks you in. Um, it, in some ways, you're trying to, I don't know, protect him the right way, but in some ways, you try and protect the sort of Pajara slash Pant extremes, right, of explaining how cricket works to people who just see a scorecard or just see someone make 30 off 120 or go out flashing at the ball outside of stump and get very angry. And so those sort of players really, really do, you know, get into your um, mood, but just purely aesthetically, probably I'm trying to think I saw the knock. I've yeah, seen some of his better knocks. Um, I was not going to say I've seen them live, but I've probably only seen a few live. Um, but yeah, he, he's just, a fantastically entertaining player. Um, we've, got a, we've got a big project that we're working on at the moment on the best 50 batters of all time. Um, and, you know, one of the other things I wanted to do, and I think I might have done that not too long ago, was look at the wicket keepers as well. It'd be really interesting to see where, you know, we have to factor him in by era. I don't think his batting average is that much more than Les Ames, for instance. And Les Ames was playing in an era where wicket keepers averaged about 12. Um, but 
but even within that, I think Rashad Pant, if you know, if his trajectory goes the same way, if you, I think if you factor in how many runs he can make and his actual impact, um, I think it could be an extraordinary player. So, uh, really, really happy um, from. Uh, uh, sorry, really, really unhappy. I mean, hey, you don't want any athlete or any person to get into a car accident like that, um, and you also, I don't want to say he's peak Rashad Pant, but he might be peak entertaining Rashad Pant. You know, eventually. There aren't too many Sewags or Gilchrist. I think more players could have more end up in the sort of more Gordon Greenwich or uh, is Gordon Greenwich a good one of that? But uh, maybe he is. But more players end up in the more. Um, uh, I had another really good name there that I've completely forgotten. But you know, over time they they sort of chisel. Uh, David Warner sort of chisel away some of the more flamboyant parts of their game and become more efficient run makers. I think Rashad Pant's still in that really exciting moment, and you know, the last thing you want to do is miss another you know, a couple of big series where he could be that person. So hopefully he gets better very, very soon. Uh, or if we've got here, uh, just to, I'll take a couple of questions on on this, just because it's obviously an issue. Uh, I mean, this is, uh, I saw the Australian players today saying the whole, oh, it's bigger than the Ashes. And then when the Ashes come around, the Ashes are bigger. And it's kind of a never-ending loop. But this is a very big series, of course. Um, and I think it's by far now our most important test series doesn't mean it is the same as the Ashes. And I think the Ashes is still fantastic as well. And England, India is also fantastic. But there is something at the moment with India Australia, and that may not last forever. You know, it's probably only been, it's almost been since we've had the BGT, right? Since Border Kavaska Trophy, it's been a pretty incredible series. But eventually, something's going to change and it's not going to be as important. So we kind of have to enjoy it while we can. Uh, Raj says, I'm kind of sad that you won't be covering it live from the grounds in India. Uh, have you stopped covering matches in person or grounds for international matches? What was the last time I was at an international match? No, I covered India, England, didn't I? Uh, from the grounds. When was that? That was when I broke my arm. Uh, was that 2021? Yeah, uh, I was at 2022. I was at New Zealand tests. So yeah, so I did. I did the England test. I should be going to New Zealand at the moment for England's tour to New Zealand. The reason I wasn't, it was, it was a visa issue. Um, very Usman Khawaja of me. Um, I had to get my, my uh, visa back um, from that point of view. So um, it was, it, uh, yeah, it didn't work. I, where else was I supposed to be going recently? I feel like there's somewhere else I was supposed to tour recently as well. Um, oh, I was gonna, I was gonna go to the World Cup. It just didn't work. It wasn't, it wasn't financially viable. I suppose now, Raj, that I am freelance building my own company. You know, when it's in my company's best in, in interest, I would travel. Whereas before, it was a little bit. You know, a big tour was a, a possibility for me to get money for the next three or four months. It's not quite how my career works anymore. Um, still, I was. I think I was supposed to do the the Women's World Cup in New Zealand, but the COVID thing screwed that over. This World Cup, I was offered, the Women's World Cup, I was offered work, um, but that didn't quite work either. It could be that I go to four series later in the year. These these things happen. I'm assuming I'll be at the majority of the Ashes, um, and there's some other tours that I think I've been asked if I'm available for. So, yeah, it, it's different. Some ways doing the YouTube stuff and the podcast is a lot easier not being on the road. I mean, Barat's not doing the show today just because, you know, things didn't work for him quite the way that they should have. Um, and that's one of the things that happens when you're traveling. Um, and so, you know, from that perspective, it, it's easier from at home. But I do miss being at the ground um, and being able to, uh, you know, see things. And 
you know, there are certain patterns when it comes to captaincy and fielding, field placements, um, and also being able to watch someone at the non-strikers end. All these sorts of things that TV doesn't really allow for um, is is a bugger. But you know, it's not it's not the end of the world. Um, I had a great career of what how, how many years? 2010 to uh, 2019. So about nine years of you know incredible touring around the world uh, you know i don't know how many i've been to south africa four five times probably in india seven or eight times in that in that period uh west indies two or three times as well so from that perspective just not worried at all um but uh, yeah it's certainly uh it's certainly a bit frustrating um what i really want to do in the future is just be able to you know with crick info i kind of had to do what crick info wanted which is fine that fits into their system what a perfect situation would be in the future, just be able to pick when um, I wanted to. Like, for instance, if I got to pick when I would to, I would probably go to Major League Cricket, you know, be able to, you know, base myself in Dallas for a month um, and, and, do, and do that sort of stuff. But chances are that, you know, work will not dictate that and I'll probably be ending up uh, doing some Asher stuff or something else. Um, I've just got a super chat here. Remember, I'll be flicking through the questions anyway, um, but you can certainly, uh, if you super chat, I'll certainly be able to um, uh, get to them. Definitely, they stand out. As this one does from Cameron, it's bright yellow. Uh, Cameron says, "Fun fact: um, Tage Noor and Chandra Paul is the first double test centurion to have played in minor league cricket." Oh, okay. So, yeah, that would have to. I'm trying to think of because there was a few bowlers, weren't there, and some all rounders. That is a fantastic fact, Cameron. And uh, I, I, I don't want to fact check it live on air, but it, it, it smells good to me, that one. Uh, so, so brilliant. If you want to come up with your absolutely random uh, facts like Cameron has, feel free to um, uh, uh, super chat them through. Uh, someone else here. So I said, where's your heart, uh, Jared? India or Australia? Well, I'm Australian. It'd be weird if I was supporting India. I usually, when I'm watching the cricket, don't have that kind of pull. So I'm not sitting there going, oh, Australia's doing well, or oh, Australia's doing bad, because I'm thinking about the cricket. I'm thinking about, you know, the players involved and, you know, the match situation and all that sort of stuff. When Australia wins something, I think I still feel that rush as a fan. But it's really, I remember when when they won the 13, 14 Ashes. So I started covering. I started um, covering cricket properly around 2008. Uh, so they lost to 2009, then they lost 2010-11, then they lost 2013 Ashes. And I was kind of fine with it. Like, you know, it was a weird time to start covering, being Australian, start covering cricket, especially being based in, in the UK. But when Australia won that series, you know, write my article, plan the videos that we had to do at the time, all that sort of normal stuff. And then there was a period where I think I was waiting for, I think I must have been working with Sam Collins at the time. I was already maybe working with George, must have been working with George at the time. I can't remember who was even working with. And there was a period where I had a break and I was waiting for them to finish up whatever they were doing. So I went out on the grass at the Wacker when, um, and when Australia started celebrating the victory. And like, I got this real fan rush. And I remember, you know, a similar thing happened in the 2015 World Cup. Uh, 2021 World Cup again, I wasn't there, but, you know, so it probably wasn't quite as strong. And there are other times when you kind of feel that fan rush with other teams win as well, you know, big upsets, obviously, or teams that you really like, or maybe teams where you know quite a few of the players. So it's not quite, it's not that I am an Australian fan in that perspective anymore. And it does change. I was trying to explain this to my uncle once. My uncle's like, oh, you don't follow the Australian cricket team as much as you used to. And I went, no, but I know them. 
Like it's a weird, the whole rep thing gets changed. You know, if you want to see how passionate I am about, you know, Australian sport, watch, watch me uh, when the, you know, when uh, the men's or women's basketball teams are playing, <laughs> um, you know, I get pretty fired up uh, in those situations. Um, whereas I just, you know, in cricket, it's a completely different situation when you have relationships with players on both sides. Uh, 2013 series, you know, really, really interesting uh, because I did know players on both sides and we, you know, I, I think Eddie played in the what first test and was around on that tour. So obviously I knew him quite well. Um, and then we were doing videos with Ian Bell. So I don't think I really knew Belly beforehand, but obviously we did videos over like 10 tests over and over again. And by the end, I had a pretty good relationship with Belly and he was losing. So even when you're excited that your particular team is winning, you're still dealing it. And, you know, Jonathan Trott had gone home, um, you know, another player who I know a little bit as well. So you build these weird relationships with players. Um, so it's not quite the same from that perspective. Um, it's, and the same now, you know, India, Australia, there are Indian and Australian players that I have relationships with and coaches and coaching staff and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And it does become more and more mixed. And the other thing is, I can't remember who said, oh, Peter English, who, who was a Crick Info um, journalist for years and now he's um, um, teaching students in Queensland. I remember John Norman asking him a question once about, you know, you've watched all this cricket, you know, what do you like? And Peter English straight away was just like wickets. When I first heard that, that, that story, I was like, yeah, that kind of makes sense for the way that I like cricket. Like, for, A, I think wickets bring chaos, so I like a little bit of chaos and stuff. But I, a interesting game to me is far better to cover than one where the team that I like, um, you know, is, is is doing well. And I don't just like Australia either. You know, my favourite team is probably Victoria. You know, and Pakistan are probably not that off, far off being my second favourite team. And I grew up loving a lot of Indian cricketers as well. You know, you know people like Sehwag and Dravid and, and Venkat. And probably Zahi Khan was another player, um, you know, that really, really uh, that spoke to me as well. It's just, it's not the same kind of relationship that other fans have, which has allowed me to build this fantastically weird um, career, right? Um, so so from, from that perspective, it would be, um, uh, it, it's hard for me to say that like I like one team or another. Um, I'll just go through a couple of, there's a couple of other questions I saw that are quite interesting. Big Nesh says, Australia expecting Akshar to be the third spinner for India, but India might surprise them by playing Cool Deep. I mean, yes. They might do that. I'm not sure that that's going to have like such a big impact that it's going to change anything. In T20 cricket, it's maybe slightly different if 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 you're planning for teams and you've got really set strategies. But Test cricket doesn't quite work that way. And also, I'm I'm just speaking for myself. I'm not with the Australian team, so you know, and I'm not even over there, so I don't even know what they're thinking. But if it was me and I was an analyst for them, I'd be like, look, I think Akshar will probably play, but. You guys have to have it in your mind that Cool Deep will play. So it's not as if Cool Deep's in a different city um, and not part of the squad and then he's going to turn up on the morning of the game. That would be quite a move. But I don't think there's going to be anything that particularly um, uh, dramatic uh, coming up, if you ask me. Um, all right. I will just uh, keep getting the questions in. Some great questions here. Uh, thank you very much to everyone. Um, uh, I'm take a quick break and I'll just go through and see if there's any more questions. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the Women's World Cup coming up. Uh, and then, of course, we'll get to Tayshia Ryan at, at the end as well. But you are listening to uh, Uncovered on 99.94. 
great to have you back on Uncovered. Uh, Bharat is somewhere in Nagpur at the moment trying to get his wife. I'll actually be asleep right now, for being honest. But uh, last time I chatted to him, he was trying to work out his uh, mobile and his uh, Wi-Fi, and he was struggling with both. So um, that's why he's not on the podcast today. Um, next week, probably be, we'll be in the middle of the test. What depends how long Australia lasts, I suppose. Uh, but he might be back next week. Uh, remember, if you are in the chat, you can ask some questions. We've got some good ones coming in. I'll get to a few of your questions later later on. Uh, but just going to the Women's World Cup, I've been doing a lot of research on it. We've got Cheyenne Khan, who's helping us out now on uh, on on my content. So you'll be seeing his name pop up more and more. Me and him have been looking at the women players by sections in the game. So there's a big video coming up on the batters and then another one on the bowlers. But we've also got a couple of other really interesting things. One one thing that I've noticed and you know, I've been talking to Hypercourse, who's sometimes lurking in our in our comments as well. I've got to get him on a podcast one day. I don't think I've ever had him on, stupidly. But one thing we've noticed is that the women don't have the same lull after the power play that the men do. And that was something that I didn't specifically assume would be the case coming in. So, so looking at it from that perspective of um, if you're looking for any differences between the women's game and the men's game, generally the women's power plays are underwhelming um there's quite a few players scoring at around a run a ball or even slower and then you look in the middle suddenly they're just absolutely you know smashing people i think i'm trying to remember who it is is it Alyssa healy has a strike rate of 160 in the middle um and i think there's about four players with strike rates of 140 plus and to get it at death i think there's three or four women who have a record of around two runs a ball um and quite a few other you know sort of 160 170 180 strike rates but it's really noticeable um that women aren't as uh, full on at at, at the top uh, i haven't looked at the bowling stuff yet but that's something else that we're going to be looking at going ahead there's some weird trends with also the kinds of batters you see in the women's game it's not as i said partly because of the way partly because of when they're attacking it doesn't have the similar kind of patterns to the men's game. So we're, what we'll probably be trying to do during the World Cup over on the YouTube channel, and we'll try and do it also on the podcast, is uh, we'll be looking at the games as much as possible on a day-by-day. Day, spit that out. India, Australia, and then England, New Zealand, we'll, pretty, uh, we'll be looking at those on a more day-to-day thing, you know, little stories. But the Women's World Cup, I've managed to get my hands on some data, maybe not enough to make me happy, but at least enough to some things out and, and play around with it a little bit and you know come up with some theories so we'll be looking at some trends and stuff um from that so hoping all three of those series will be fairly well covered um on that on in the next month or so so no matter what you like i got you hopefully unless it's something else um and then i don't got you um but yeah really excited about the women's world cup uh beth mooney is someone i'm probably gonna have to do an entire video on it wasn't till I really broke her game down piece by piece that I realized how much better she was than any other World Cup uh, well, T20 player at the moment. Laura Wolfhart, by the way, should be almost as good as Beth Mooney, I think, when you have a really good look at uh, the details. And I wonder if Laura Wolfhart is partly not exploding in the same way that Beth Mooney does just because she doesn't have the backup. I and mean, some of the... Some of the numbers of the England, of the Australian women, especially the all-round women, allows them to, you know... <laughs> Back to number 12 if they wanted to um, and have like nine bowling options. It really is ridiculous the kinds of teams that Australia could go in with, which means that Beth Mooney can push herself a little bit harder. But she is 
Absolutely next level. So um, really excited about that. And it's incredible um, that uh, I think was it announced today that we, it's less than a month or just, no, it's at the 10th of March uh, that the women's IPL is coming around. We barely got owners. <laughs> um, and we got a World Cup. So I'm assuming there's going to be a lot of players who do well in this World Cup who are about to get quite a bit of money. But it'd be a lot of fun um, to have a look at that. Um, but yeah, we'll have a look at... Um, uh, we'll, we'll certainly be covering that here. Um, really, really fascinated as uh, with, you know, it's the first time I've been able to really delve into the T20 numbers of the women. And by that, I mean, the international data has been available for a little bit, but now there's more of more of the franchise stuff um, kicking around. If you want to play with it yourself, Crick Metric is a place that we've seen quite a bit of it as well. But um, yeah, really looking forward to that. Um, and then, you know, a more traditional uh, sort of coverage that we'll probably be doing of India, Australia. And then I think there's one test match where England, New Zealand and India, Australia overlap. So in that one, I'll be working for Talk Sport. So I'll be covering the England, New Zealand one. But uh, either way, it'd be a lot of early mornings for me <laughs> over the next month or so. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, keep yourself around here. Um after the break, we are going to talk about um, Tej Dora and Chandrapal. And then if you've got any more questions, put them up. And uh, if they tickle me, metaphorically speaking, uh, uh, we'll answer them at the end of the show. Welcome back. Um, thank you very much. Sorry, I just got a really, really interesting question. And I'm probably going to have to take a ad break later just to quickly read this article. Um and, and try and work it out. But, Andrew, I'll try and get to that one if I can. Uh, just on the West Indies, uh, well, Tej uh obviously incredible that he's made the double century. I thought he batted quite well at times in Australia. I've only seen fits uh, of, of this one. Um, but he's a player that at a very young age I, I assumed would play a lot of test cricket. It's really interesting that he hasn't played uh, as much, especially considering uh, his record is not particularly that much worse than other players. And I've now completely lost where I put all of his stats. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Ah, uh, here we go. Wrong browser. Um, but I found this really interesting. So his first class batting average is 38. And if you look at him year on year, he he averages, and, and remember in the West Indies, they don't always play a lot of cricket. But he basically is averaging, I would say, I think it's about, 28-29 over the first, what, six years of his career. Now, remember, he starts really, really young. So that is obviously a big part of it. And also the other thing with the West Indians, as I say, so his first year he plays four games, next year he plays five games, following year he plays one, then he plays five, then he plays eight. He's not, you know, he's not getting the same sort of opportunities as other players. But even if you look at the last couple of years, in 2019, he played eight games and averaged 32. And in 2020, he played uh, eight games and he averaged 24. So it's not like he's been smashing the door down. And those were the first two years, no, 2018, 2019 were the first years he made um, 100. He hasn't been smashing the door down. But there's something that I couldn't quite work out here because I had seen him, and I'm trying to remember, I'm trying to remember where he was playing, but he's playing on one of the islands and I saw him play. And I've also watched a bit of highlights because I've been watching him since he was young. And I kind of just Every time he'd made runs, I would watch him to see, you know, what was going on and, and why he hadn't been doing better. If you just take a random year, so so he gets picked. He doesn't play any first class in 2021, of course. But in 2020, uh, he averages 24. And if you just look at that year, uh, he ha- plays eight games. And in those eight games, he plays 
half of his games in Providence. Now, Providence is it's one of my favorite cricket grounds in the world. It's such a bizarre place, but the fans absolutely love it. There's snakes outside the ground, I'm told, uh, which is just a fun fact. Um, you know, although I suppose in some of the Sri Lankan grounds you get snakes in the grounds, but either way, you don't chase the balls outside of Providence. The Guyanese fans massively support cricket. It's a great place for cricket. Um, the stands are kind of these old rattlers. It, it, the shape of the ground does It's a bit like St. Kitts where you're just like, who would put this together in this fashion? But they have, and people really like it. But it is, of course, uh, without doubt, maybe one of the, you know, the biggest dog shit wickets um, in the world. It's absolutely dreadful, dreadful surface for, I want to say batting. could argue bowling as well. Um, and so... I, I just had a quick look before this, and it might be something that's worth the video. He's played 54 first-class games at the moment and averages 38. A lot of those runs are very, very recently, and they're also there for West Indies and also, I think, for West Indies A. So I think he's played about six or seven games for those two teams and really scored a lot of runs. But up until that point, not scoring a lot of runs. And uh, so I looked up where he's made his runs. Um, so he's played five games at the Viv Richards Stadium and he's averaged 22. But he averages 35 at Sabina Park. He averages 41 at Kensington Oval, 60 at Darren Sammy, and uh, 40 at Queen's Park. So those are the major West Indies grounds. And other than the the the, the ground in North Sound in Antigua, he's pretty much really, really good. But here's the interesting thing. He averages 28.9 at Providence. And he's played 19 games there. That is a really bizarre thing to see a player with such a poor record at, in their home ground. And you watch him play the pace bowlers, and you also watch the sort of the way that his game has gone about. I, I'm making some guesses here, and I don't know, know Shivnar on Chandra Paul, but I'd love to get him on the podcast and, and talk to him about his son specifically and how he's developed. My guess is that Shiv, as a coach, has coached his son on how to be a very, very good player in test match-like conditions which is probably part of the reason that uh, he has such a good record at, on the other kinds of grounds in the West Indies, which are all far more like normal test cricket grounds. And Guyana, which is almost, I'm not sure there is another pitch like Guyana left in world cricket. I'm trying to think, even maybe some of the UAE pitches at times. No, not really. They're even then not really like Guyana. It's it's such a, maybe the Bangladesh, some of the Bangladesh wickets, but I wondered if Shiv had trained his son in a particular way that allowed him um, to do very well, you know, against things like sideways movement, um, against extra bounce, against, you know, um, fast-moving spin bowling and all these sorts of things. This is just me guessing. But in the stats, that is actually what he is good at at the moment. And so, you know, there's a lot of people, I think, I remember, did someone even asked me a question and I forgot to answer it? Um you know, why he hasn't, uh, why he hadn't come through sooner. And I do think that it's possibly that his average look worse than it than it actually was. Um, and if someone had been doing the research, they would have realized that actually what you had was a way above average first-class player who, for whatever reason, couldn't make any runs at Guyana, which is not, making runs at Guyana doesn't mean you're going to have a good career in test cricket because it's not like anything else. Anyway, it's, I think it's a very fascinating issue. Um, if I get some more information out of it, I can always talk to um, Santoki and um, Michelle um, and at the very least run my theory by them, um, You know, send a message to some of my friends in, in, in the West Indies team to see uh, if they've thought of anything about it. But it does feel like he was overlooked um, based on kind of this weird statistical anomaly because I've talked about this before with players like Shreya Sire, 
Alex Hales is another one where their their numbers were completely inflated by their home record. You know, how good they were at home made a big difference to how people saw them as players. That's the more common way of doing it. This is uh this is kind of a random uh one that um Tej Noren has done. But fantastic effort from him. Second uh father and son duo to make is it double hundreds? Or hundreds? It should maybe it's double hundred. Must be double hundreds. Uh did Aaron Redmond make a hundred for New Zealand? Um uh yeah, so fantastic effort from from that point of view. Interestingly, he now has a higher score than his father, who is, I mean, he's a great, isn't he? I don't know. I, it'd be really interesting to go through Shiv's record at the end because he made a lot of runs in that era that was very good for batting, but he also did it on pitches where no one else particularly made that many runs. Um, so from that perspective, very, very interesting. Um, we'll have another quick break, uh, and I'm going to try and read this article that Andrew has mentioned. And then after the break, uh, we will um, get to the rest of your questions. Great. Let us get back and we'll finish up with a couple of questions. Amanan says, how many world-class international players will take part in the upcoming Major League Cricket? Uh, uh, will they be part of the draft? Yeah, I, I know there's a couple of players um, there's already got, uh, they've already got in touch with Major League Cricket. There's a few people who are just interested in it. They want to spend time uh, in America. There are other people who are, you know, looking at potentially, you know, having a place over there and everything else. So yeah, I think you will see some big names. I don't want I don't want to betray any trust because some of the players have asked me about it. But there's a couple of very big name players who are very interested in in getting involved, and they just want to know more information about it, right? You know, they they want to know if this is something that they should be involved with and everything else. Um, uh, but yes, they certainly, uh, they're certainly trying to think, um, I don't know if it will be, I think it will be more like the hundred where, and I don't know how much major league cricket have done this. I haven't talked to them about this specifically, but there might be a couple of teams. Um, uh, there might be a couple of teams who will go out there and, and say it's worth them having a go at, um, it's the best way of putting it. There might be a couple of teams out there that, sorry, a couple of players out there who will think. What else am I going to be playing? Am I going to be playing in the 100 or the CPL? If that's the case, you know, is this not a better um, situation to be going forward? Also, it depends on IPL owners as well. Uh, we don't have the final ownership group, but there's certainly going to be IPL owners involved. Um, I think some might have even been announced publicly already. Um, that's going to play a big change. But yes, I do expect there to be some world-class players. How many uh, is a fair question. I think it'd probably be more on, along the lines of what you saw in the 100 rather than, you know, what you would, well, I suppose the IPLZ and the other major tournament. So maybe something along those lines. Uh, so I'll just uh, finish off with some questions. Uh, so Riffit says, what's your view on calling rank turners unfair? Well, <laughs> I think you need to read the question you've asked there. A rank turner, <laughs> in the name, it is implied that it is unfair. I would say that for every person who complains about rank turners being unfair has probably made a similar com comment about green tops being unfair. The, I think the biggest difference that is, I, I think there's certainly some cultural and racial and ethnic and uh, historical reasons why those wickets are seen that way. And I've written about that before and you probably go back and find some of my articles about it. But I also think that legitimate there is a legitimate big difference between a green top and a rank turner and 
part, partly is the green tops quite often get better after a couple of days. Um, and the other thing is that when pitches, when it, when there is grass, the ball might also be in a position to swing more. Um, you know, where we have more grass, we usually have more swing. So those two things go a little bit hand in hand. And so quite often a green top will be blamed for the ball swinging in the air. Um, I remember having a huge fight with that, with a cricket commentator once where we were talking about um, how flat the pitch was because I think Spain Australia had made 550 and then England had been rolled. I think it was at Lords. They lost a bunch of wickets and this guy was going on and on about, how can you say it's a flat pitch? And I was like, well, they all went out to swing bowling. <laughs> the pitch didn't do anything. <laughs> Just the ball was swinging in the air and, and they nicked off. And, and I, so I, I do, I do think that it's always worth um, remembering that. And it's also just all, also remembering that quite often if a pitch spins really poorly on day one, then it will continue to do that until the, you know, test is almost unplayable at times. Um, but there should be um, good spin and bounce. And w- the thing is that the whole idea about calling rank turn as unfair and everything else is we don't even have to have those conversations anymore. We can check the data and <laughs> we can be like, no, it spun a lot, but it was certainly playable and other players would have been fine with that. For some reason, all these teams got bowled out for 150 and let's go about our day. Um, and at the moment, everything is opinion-based. And when it's opinion-based, you get words like rank turners. Kyle says, after the offseason, it looks like the WNBA now has two super teams and I'm seeing more coverage than ever. Do you think there is a team close enough to challenge Australia and push the women's cricket game? Not yet, but I mean, if the women's IPL works and the women's 100 works, there's, I don't think there's any reason for Australia to be dominant for a long period going ahead. So from that perspective, I don't see how that would stop. The other perspective, I suppose, there is that do really it would be great if another team was good and another team was good just behind australia but perhaps all you really need is occasionally for australia to stutter or look vulnerable really the better thing is that we now have seven or eight teams that can play cricket whereas 10 years ago you know the seventh and best eighth women's teams just weren't up to scratch at all and they were quite clearly you know way behind and I think it's probably more important that we have a bunch of teams getting better rather than just having a two, you know, super teams. But from a narrative perspective, if England or um, India or I don't know South Africa came from nowhere, you know, were suddenly going head to head with Australia over a three or four year period, and that becomes a great rivalry, that's also another great narrative. But I think the better thing for women's cricket now is the spread of the teams. Um, you know, having Thailand be good. Um, you know, having Bangladesh be good, Pakistan, you know, Sri Lanka coming back, all these sorts of teams, uh, hopefully the West Indies uh, holding on to some of their better players. If that's the case, then then what you have is a much stronger competition. And I, I personally would be more interested in that. I thought the last was the one-day World Cup, wasn't it? I'm so confused across all these different formats at the moment. At least the men were easy. They had two T20s in a row. I could remember that. Uh, the one-day World Cup, I, I just thought it was a fantastic tournament because so many teams did well. I think we all knew Australia was going to win. Um, but there were so many teams out there doing well that I thought it was just a, it just felt like a much better women's tournament than we'd had in the past. Sandeep says, have you spoken with Raul Dravid recently? If you had to suggest some things to him, what would they be? Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think a funny answer to that. Um, uh, well, I don't know when the last time, I mean, it's kind of like asking you when the last time you spoke to someone that you know is um i don't think we've had a chat directly since he became coach 
I certainly haven't sent him any messages. I don't think he sent any to me unless I missed them. Um, so no, uh, I have not talked to him for a while. I have other friends though that are, are you know involved in the uh, in that setup, and you know other people are around the traps and everything else. Um, and I know for a fact that Raul has watched some of my videos. So from that that perspective. Am I sub- is that subliminally sending him messages? Um, there's a quite a few. I don't think, I don't think, but there's certainly been representatives of Australia, India, and some of the other teams as well, uh, New Zealand, who have watched the videos from a like a tactical slash analysis point of view. Of you know, it's always they might disagree with it, they might agree with it, but it's good to see another person sort of you know take these things apart and and show them and so i know roles i've definitely had a, a look at those and probably probably subscribes to my email um knowing him he's probably more of a reader than a youtuber isn't he if we're being really honest but yeah i am um, uh but i haven't had anything to do with him uh you know i'm sure if we bumped into each other we do what we usually do which is this big long nerdy chats and um that you know in cricket it's kind of that i'm not very good at you know calling people up and just chatting but you see them around the ground and then suddenly you know you're in a 45 minute conversation about uh, who the world's best number five is and you know why your team is uh is doing what it's doing at the moment and everything else um you know th- so for instance mickey arthur i didn't really know mickey arthur before i commentated with him recently and didn't take long for me you know mickey arthur to get into the deepest nerd discussions of all time so <laughs> um that's the, the kind of way those things go but uh I, also i don't like reaching out there are sometimes i i remember reaching out to andrew mcdonald years ago um uh when brad hogg was struggling with his form Got the feeling I did something similar with Mike Hessen at one stage for a particular reason. I might have sent Jimmy Adams a message occasionally. Um, I don't. I don't like doing it because I kind of feel like they know this stuff. And more often, what happens is I make something, and then suddenly one of them gets in touch and be like, "Tell me how you came about this, or is there anything else that you left out of the the article or the video or whatever else?" But I think it's a bit. I don't know. It's just. It's not how I was brought up to be like, "Hey, Roll, have you seen this latest video?" I think you really like it. Um, it's just, it's just not the way I do it. Whereas, you know, him or, um, you know, one of the Australian selectors or, um, someone from New Zealand cricket sees something and contacts me and just like, you know, can we get, I had a, I had a coach the other day, you know, call me up and just say, can we just chat for 20 minutes about, um, something you said in a podcast? I just w- want to get, wrap my head around it a little bit more, you know, that much rather do it that way. Um, that, but as I said, there are some times where I'm just like, I don't think this team knows this thing. In fact, one of them was the Brad Hogg, Andrew McDonald one. And I'm pretty sure I told Andrew McDonald that. And he's like, yeah, we already knew. But thank you. So, you know, kind of felt like an idiot. Uh, Josh says, you mentioned the other day that Bavuma is strongest in ODIs. Who else would you say this applies to? Wokes seems an obvious one. Well, I suppose Wokes is interesting. He certainly has skills in T20 cricket and skills in test cricket. Um, but yeah, I can see what you mean from from him as a player. Uh, I, I suppose you'd have to say Shy Hope is uh, that player um, at the moment. He's certainly better in one-day cricket than he is in any other form of cricket. Oh, there's one other thing, I'm uh, just because I mentioned West Indians, but on, uh, um, attached to him before, I think another reason that they probably hadn't made as big of a push for him outside of the statistical anomaly I was talking about was also that he's very slow in the same way that Craig Brathwaite is, and there's probably a feeling that they didn't want to match two slow openers together. Sorry, that just came into my head. Um, uh so josh who else uh would you say is a very very good one day player that probably is not quite as good at any other format yeah B- bavuma shy hope chris wokes they all make sense i gotta say Jadeja, but it's probably a bit unfair to his test playing really isn't it because he's fantastic at that too um and 
statistically, he hasn't always been a good one-day player, but I kind of feel over the last couple of years, things have changed a little bit there. Um, and I'm still not quite as sure he's as good a one-day player. i uh, sorry, a T20 player. Um, but yeah, no, that's oh, probably not Jadeja, is it, as well? I, I would just, I was going to say Baba Azam. I mean, you wouldn't say he's a specialist, but you would certainly say that based on everything we know about him, that is the one format where he is, well, at the moment, he's one of the greatest players statistically of all time. <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to argue with that. So he's certainly fantastic from, from that point of view. So, yeah, he's quite an interesting one. And Girash says, has there ever been a change to the approach reset by team in history that has simulated um, uh, results as quickly as Basball? So Australia, when they decided to attack with the bat i think that was almost instantaneous i'm trying to think if it was was it the pakistan series uh when they flipped the switch and they basically went from drawing quite a lot to winning quite a lot i mean it's less dramatic west indies is interesting because the actual move to the four fast bowlers takes a long time i, I should look this up because i know i wrote about it in my book so i was really interested in how long it took them it was a long period but just going away from spinners, which I suppose is the first move that West Indies cricket made, certainly had a very, very instantaneous uh, result. So uh, so from those two perspectives, those are the two that um, are the most. And if you want, the, yeah, I suppose the most, the most dramatic one and the one that perhaps could be the most related to what England is currently doing, just because we don't know if England is going to go on a run like West Indies or Australia did, is when South Africa had the four leg spinners in, in 1905, 1906, they've never won a test match before. I think they had one draw against Australia at that point. And that draw came on the back of Australia, basically coming off the boat and playing a test match the next day. Uh, you, you want to talk about a lack of preparation that uh, they took that to the extreme. So, you know, England had been beating South Africa with like four string teams, like, you know, all, all due respect to see Aubrey um, um, Smith, uh, one of my favorite cricketers of all time. You know, there's some pretty ropey cricketers who did play for England versus South Africa. You know, in some cases, their only first-class games were playing against South Africa, which tells you, you know, the sort of people who were playing. And they were still beating South Africa. So to go from that level of cricket to beating a slightly stronger England team and not just beating them, but smashing the face off them and also having four leg spinners and not just four leg spinners, but all four leg spinners could spin the ball in both directions – when that delivery really was it seven, eight, no, six, seven years earlier before even one person had perfected it. Um, and suddenly they had four in their team and that had a huge impact on cricket. But what it, it did mean quite quick, not quite quickly, but it did mean over time that batters started to pick it a lot more. Um, and so it had a very short term effect, but that short term effect was as dramatic as kind of um, anything we've ever seen before. Um, uh, so yeah, so we have seen. I, I'm trying to think of other mini baseball type revolutions. I think that is some others. I'm trying to think of stuff. That, well, body line, I suppose, is another one, right? That's a very, very fair one. So you know, West Indies flirt with body line. We see a couple of county teams, you know, trialing at times. Um, England go all in, win that series. You know, tame Bradman so that he's just a regular great, not a great great. And they don't use it again because of the the smear on their campaigns. And also, they, I don't think they had the bowlers after that. You know, it, um, you know, if Larwood wasn't going to play, and I think I wrote about this recently. I'm pretty sure Larwood had to apologise in order to play, and he wouldn't apologise 
you know, Bill Vos is incredible, but Bill, Bill Vos was more like Neil Wagner. And, you know, in order to make body line work, you needed who would La would be? Um, probably more, I was going to say Joffre Archer. That's not really fair. Dale Stain, I suppose. Uh, La was probably more like a Dale Stain type bowler. So having him at the other end obviously helps in that sort of thing. Uh, you, so you have one guy at one end who's bowling left arm um, short, fast in a period where left arm bowlers don't exist. Um, and no one knew how to play the left arm short bowling. So Bill Vos has a huge advantage. And then you've got the shorter, skittier, fast guy at the other end that you can't duck very well. Um, so that combination of those two bowlers really made body line work. If they didn't have them again, um, that was always going to be a problem going ahead. So those are the two that spring to mind. Both of those are a little bit shorter, but you know, also that's the way that test cricket sort of happened in that a way. Um, the only other one I was thinking of, I'm not sure it's a revolution in playing style, but you know, that sort of just before the, um, the South Africans were kicked out of cricket, uh, that sort of team that they were putting together. We don't know how good they were. They didn't play any teams that weren't white. Um, they hadn't toured for a long period of time. Was it six, five years, six years? But that was something, you know, having, uh, I wouldn't say they were particularly playing in a different way, but, you know, maybe maximizing their strengths um, in a way that perhaps India did as well. Our last one is from Andrew. And uh, I read in The Guardian about controller players' data rights. I wonder if you had an opinion. So I've only just flicked through during the ads about this. And um, it's a slightly longer piece than I thought it was going to be um, on this. So what is not completely talked about here is what data they are talking about. I think I was asked... Ooh, maybe six years ago by someone um, about the personal data side of things. So we measure players, we do yo-yo tests, uh, you know, we check their heart rates and everything else, everything, right? And most cricket boards would have that on their players. And I'm pretty sure that there's a lot of American sports where the players don't allow some of those things, or at least the players can control it or they can go off and get their own information and everything else. Um, and it's a little bit more weird. I can't remember. There's the catapult um, system that we're using uh, that a lot of teams use in cricket, 10 or 12 teams use it in cricket. I think there's one major American sport where the players might've gone against it because they realized what they would be giving away. Uh, so that's very fair. The major part of data in cricket at the moment is the scorecards and the ball-by-ball -ball data, I don't see how that can be controlled. And then the other one, of course, is the Hawkeye data. That's a really, really interesting one because I don't know. It, at the moment, it's of my feeling anyway that what cricket teams are doing or cricket boards are doing is trying to own that more and more. And so it used to, used to be able to get it on websites. Cricket Info used to have it. Uh, the ICC's website used to have it, BCCI's website. Um, and then all those places found out that they had loopholes in we could take the data off off their systems, naughty us, and and that went away. Um, yeah, so from that uh, pers perspective, uh, you know that 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 sort of data, you know, if you've got a company like Crickviz who was making money from Hawkeye, I don't know uh, how how that system go works going ahead. Um, uh, the players would say that they are very much involved with that, but it, is that their personal data? I mean, it's a bowler's personal data. I'm not sure it's a batter's personal data, but the next step is going to be spatial tracking, which will be the batters and the fielders. So that is really a really, really interesting question going ahead. And I know that there are some other teams that are, are some other sports uh, like football where that's coming to a head. As I said, some of the American sports, there's been issues with that already. Body auto autonomy of athletes. 
which is a really, really interesting um, legal case for players going ahead. But the actual ball-by-ball data, um, I don't see how the players can claim to own that. It's it's in the public domain. Like Crick Info, for instance, put out all that ball-by-ball data and Crick Buzz as well. And that's where it's all scrapes from. And there's a thing about hot news and cold news that there was a there was a case um, involving Crick Info and Crick Buzz years ago with the BCCI. Um, I think I, I don't know if there's a way to put the ball by ball um, stuff back in, but certainly the fitness stuff I think is really really interesting going ahead. And then I don't know where Hawkeye fits into that. Um, it'd be really really interesting discussion uh, with you know people at the PCA and how they felt about it because you know it's certainly. I think that that data should be, the Hawkeye data specifically should be made public so that we can have, so that cricket can improve much faster, which is the way that some of the other sports have done. But I can also understand if Crickviz own it, why they would not want that to happen. And if the cricket boards also own it, they would not want that to happen. What happens when a third party owns it? Um, do Crickviz not even get access to it? Do the cricket boards have to ask permission and some players opt out of it? Fascinating, fascinating thing. And on top of all this, we're talking about top-level professionals. There's a company in England that is setting up a rig for club cricket, and I think it already exists, but I'm not sure if it's being used yet, where you can just put like a harness on uh, uh, on an umpire, and they go out there, and you can get ball-tracking stuff in your club cricket, right? That's the level of which we're getting to. If that is also, that then also becomes a big problem if you're playing an opposition team and you're not allowed to use their data. Um, and as I said, which data can you use and can you not use? It's a fascinating um, thing. But I have to read the article a little bit more, Andrew, to get um, a, a better uh, view on it. But it's a very, very interesting thing. These are the sorts of things that uh, I'm surprised haven't come up before. It's a bit like the players' rights in, um, uh, issues. Um, certainly that... I think took a little bit longer in cricket, you know, for all countries to understand. And I'd, I would still say this, that, you know, certainly the Indian players and probably the Pakistani players, their players' rights images uh, should be worth, well, five times what their contracts are worth. And that, you know, p- partially maybe because they don't have unions, but those sorts of things are certainly things that are coming through. Uh, how long before you might get, you know, um, lawsuits also based on the fitness, like Lizelle Lee, might be able to say, well, you've you failed me on this, but I actually passed the fitness test and I had the highest batting average in women's ODI cricket in 2021. Um, uh, you know, those sorts of issues. Uh, we've already seen a couple of players sue for injuries. Uh, the other one is batting coaches and throwing balls down. There's lots of really little fiddly stuff, um, I suppose, that is coming out in, in cricket over the next uh, few years. And, and it's not just cricket, of course. You know, these things are changing. These players own their own stories. You know, we saw a couple of websites where famous players could, you know, make their own decisions, uh, uh, write their own articles on themselves. You know, players are taking a little bit more ownership of themselves. And look, it might annoy me because I want to know as much information as possible and I want the game to move forward. But, I, you know, it's their bodies right? It's, they are putting their bodies on the line. Um, and ultimately they should be the people, um, who get to, uh, you know, uh, get to decide on what gets shown and what doesn't. Anyway, great questions are there. Thank you for uh, looking, looking out for me and Barat after we got uh, a little bit stuck in the mud on this episode. Uh, I, if you haven't seen it, there's a great video on YouTube that we made. Um, I don't say great cause it's a great video, but I think 
it's a really fascinating thing about South Africa's one day batting and how it works and how it doesn't work. It's really, really, uh, I know I'm obsessed with South African batting, but even if you're not, I think you really like that one. Uh, we've got something coming up on um, India Australia on Wednesday. Uh, and then on Thursday, we will go into some of our women's World Cup coverage. And then we'll just be trying to get up as many videos as possible um, on the on the two series. We'll probably cover the India Australia series on a day by day basis, but there might be some days when we miss it because um, uh, yeah, I have a lot of children. <laughs> um, uh, and then, as I said, with the Women's World Cup, I'm just going to be watching as much as I can and looking for any key stories. And then, uh, as we go forward, other things will go out. Support your local 99.94 podcast or Edges and Sledges. I was on uh, one of their recent. Um, episodes and it's worth um, having a look at um, at stuff like that. But um, thank you all for listening, for watching, for commenting, for everything else. Uh, anyway, you can leave us a review, or you can subscribe, or you can uh, press the bell icons, or um, you know help support us on Patreon and everything else. Uh, please do, and hopefully I will uh, track down Burra next week, and uh, we'll do it at a time um, that suits both of us. Uh, but bye for now. And uh, I will see you again on what day is today? Monday. So I'll be back on Thursday uh, with another episode of Wagon Wheel. So if you didn't get a question answered today, uh, feel free to come through on Wagon Wheel and ask um, something there. But uh, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the 99.94 Network Cricket every day. Remember to download our app or just search for your favorite team at 99.94 where you find podcasts on Google or YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon and there are many other extras available there as well. There is a link to the show notes. The show is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. Barrett Sundaresan is my co-host. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great production team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orajoti Senapayi and Maida Akam producing podcasts, and Makunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube account.